And you may be seated. take our Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of Isaiah once again this morning. Isaiah, book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. The book of Isaiah chapter 53, and uh, this morning we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. So Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse number 1, once you find it, let's go ahead and stand in reverence to God's Word. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse number 1. Isaiah writes, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? 
For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse number 7 is where we're going to be this morning. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. This morning I want to preach on the silent Messiah, the silent Messiah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask now that, Lord, your word would not return void as it goes out into this auditorium this morning. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would allow your spirit to work in our hearts. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know Christ as their personal Savior, Lord, you'd cause them to see their need this morning and that they would not leave here in the same condition in which they came. Lord, I pray that none of us would leave here in the same condition in which we came. Father God, that all of us would be encouraged by your word, we'd be strengthened by your word, and each and every one of us would draw closer to you because of what you've done for us. And Lord, we do thank you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can go ahead and be seated. The last several Sundays, we have been kind of going through a series in which we're preparing for Easter. And as we continue to prepare for Easter Sunday, we're considering just a few of the 24 predictions that Isaiah made about the Messiah, who we believe to be Jesus of Nazareth. Now, keep in mind, Isaiah made these predictions some 700, seven, or over 700 years before Jesus was even born. Being led by the Holy Spirit of God, Isaiah hit each one of them right on the head. And we looked at that in the, very, the first part of this series. We looked at all 24 of these statements. And we didn't go through all 24, uh, but we just looked, uh, I think, at the first nine and how that Jesus fulfilled each and every one of them. We talked about the impossibility of any man fulfilling just nine of these prophecies. Yet Jesus fulfilled over 300 of the prophecies that are given about the Messiah in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And that's how Isaiah could have 100% accuracy when he's talking about the Messiah and the things that the Messiah would do and the things that the Messiah would be, even though he was born 700 years after Isaiah made these predictions. Because prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't Isaiah's prophecy. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 
Last week, we looked at the prediction that Isaiah made in which he essentially said the Messiah would be considered uh, by the world to be insignificant. Or, to put it in today's terms, Jesus would be considered non-essential. The Bible tells us in verse number, uh, or verse number 1 of Isaiah chapter 53, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now he talks about the Messiah. For he, the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So last week we considered, why would the Messiah... Why would the King of Kings, why would the Lord of Lords, why would the Creator who put on flesh and came down and dwelt among us, why would he be considered insignificant, non-essential? We came up with the three following reasons. Number one, because he was a servant. He was a servant. In verse number 13 of Isaiah chapter 52, the first statement about him would be that he would be a servant. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered or came not to be served, but to minister or to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, of course, even in Jesus' day, rulers did not serve. They expected to be served. And of course, we can certainly see that in our day. In our own country, rulers and lawmakers, they don't expect to serve us. They expect us to serve them. And it hasn't become more evident than it was probably in the last couple of years where they placed all these mandates upon us and they themselves didn't even live according to those mandates. And the reason being, they don't expect to serve us. They expect us to serve them and we know that even in jesus day the scribes the rulers of his day jesus said they want the best seats they want the best rooms they want to be called master they want to be called rabbi they want to be called father and they serve no one except their own interests but jesus was different here came a king And dwelt among the people, and he served the people. Well, no wonder he was considered insignificant. No wonder he was despised and rejected of men. But also the second reason was because Jesus succumbed. He succumbed. He succumbed to infancy and childhood, as well as the weakness of the flesh. And we went into depth on this last week. We're not going to do it this week. But uh, if you were not here last week, I would encourage you to, um, to get caught up, uh, to maybe go look at it on YouTube and to get the outline and to hear all the explanation to it. But he succumbed. He succumbed to infancy. The king of kings did not have to do that. He succumbed to the weaknesses of the flesh. And he who, he who created flesh did not have to do that. But he did for our sakes. 
So number one, he served. Number two, he succumbed. And number three, he sacrificed. He sacrificed. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty ye might be rich. Wow, rulers don't do that. They don't give up their wealth so that their servants can become wealthy. No, instead, they, they continue to tax their subjects so that they can become wealthier and richer. Jesus was completely opposite of what a ruler is supposed to be. And thus, he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, now we come to another odd prediction. Verse number seven. The Bible says that he was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. When was the last time that you knew somebody who was treated unjustly and they didn't complain about it? And they didn't gripe about it? And they didn't get upset about it. Boy, I want to tell you something. When I'm treated unfairly, I gripe about it. I complain about it. People know about it. And I think that when any of us are treated unjustly or unfairly, we complain about it. We gripe about it. But the Bible says about Jesus that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. I want to talk this morning about the silent Messiah. Though theoretically he could have stopped the torture at any time, he let his accusers have their way with him. He could have exposed the false witnesses at any time, and yet he let them have their say. Why remain silent? Just as I gave three reasons last week, I want to give three reasons this morning. Why did he remain silent? And the number one reason is because it was the final revelation. Number one, it was the final revelation. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 7, that Jesus Christ is our Passover and that he has sacrificed for us. So like the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, Jesus knew the importance of fulfilling all the requirements And so to get you familiar with the Passover, let's go ahead and turn back to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, Exodus and chapter 12, the book of Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, and this is where God instituted with his people the Passover. And that Passover lamb had to meet certain requirements, Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12 and beginning in verse number two. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 2. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. So the Passover, the beginning of the Passover, it was on the tenth of the first It was on the 10th day of the first month of the year for them. And, of course, their month would be different. We're not talking January. It'd be closer to April. And so on the 10th day of that month, 
Every household was to take a lamb on the 10th day. And the Bible says they were to take that lamb on the 10th day. And the Bible says that in verse number 4, I'm sorry, verse number 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Ye shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And so they took, this, they took this lamb out of the fold. It had to be, first of all, a male. Well, that would be pretty easy to spot. Well, not by today's standards, but by normal standards, that would be pretty easy to spot. We wouldn't have to ask the lamb, what's your pronoun, sir, ma'am? I mean, I'm sorry, what's your pronoun? No, we could take a lamb out of the flock. Biology tells us that it's a male, or it's a female. If it was a female, you didn't take it. It didn't qualify because it had to picture the Savior. The Messiah would be a male. And so they would take him out. Okay, check. He's a male. We didn't have to ask him. Okay, well, now you've got to observe him for three days because you need to make sure that there's nothing wrong internally. And there's nothing wrong externally. It had to be a lamb without blemish. It had to picture Jesus Christ. And that's why God would give them over three days, three and a half days or so, to observe that lamb. It would be separated from the rest of the fold. And now I can observe this lamb, make sure there's no spot, there's no blemish, there's no cancer, there's no nothing on the inside, Uh, there's no weirdness about this lamb. It is a lamb. It is a perfect representation, a lamb without spot, without blemish. So God gave them those three and a half days so they could observe this lamb. And I guarantee you, many would go and they'd pick a lamb. And after a half day, they'd realize, oh, man, there's a problem with this lamb that I didn't see. Well, then you went and you took the lamb back and you went and you got another lamb. But the importance was that it fulfilled the qualifications for three Three and a half days. Jesus had given his people three and a half years. He came out in public at the beginning of his ministry. The Bible says he was 30 years old. And there, uh, and, and you can pinpoint when you want. I always pinpoint it when he went to Nazareth, his hometown, and he read the book of Isaiah. And he said, today this is being fulfilled before your eyes. And they were offended in him. And then he began, and, and he was, of course, he was baptized of John. His public ministry began. And for three, three and a half years, he would demonstrate to the people that he fulfilled all the qualifications to be the Messiah. As a matter of fact, on more than one occasion, Jesus urged his accusers to point out the fault they themselves had personally observed. Hey, if you have found a fault and you've observed a fault, then, then don't believe me. During his ministry, as they questioned him, Jesus said in John chapter 10, Verse number 37, listen to what he said. John 10, verse 37, he said, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, 
believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So he said, observe me, watch. And if I don't do the works of my Father, then discount me. I'm a false Messiah. He said, but if I do the works of my Father, even though you may not like the way I look, you may not like the way that I teach, you may not like the way that I, uh, that I walk. He says, if, if I do the works of my Father, believe them. But if I don't, then, you know, don't, I, I, I'm a false, I'm a false Messiah. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works. That ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus put himself under a microscope because he was revealing to the people. This was a revelation of the Messiah. He was revealing to the people that I am he. In Luke chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way. Now this was when John was in prison, John the Baptist. And while John was in the Baptist in prison, he started having doubts. Remember, he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, when he, when he saw Jesus. And then, of course, he baptized Jesus there in the Jordan. And he proclaimed, I must decrease, he must increase. Well, you know, at a very low point in John the Baptist's life, and I think that every single one of us who know Christ as our Savior can, well, we can definitely sympathize and even empathize with uh, John the Baptist. He began to have doubts. And he said to his friends, he said, Would you go to Jesus of Nazareth and ask him, Art thou the one, or should we look for another? And you know, when they came and they asked, Jesus didn't even answer them. He just continued doing what he did. And then he focused his attention back on them, and he said this, Luke seven twenty two. Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. You know, it doesn't do me any good to claim to be the Messiah. I'm going to reveal it through my works. So go back and tell John the things that you've seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to the poor, and the gospel is preached. Jesus took those years of his ministry to reveal to them that he was who he claimed to be. He took those three and a half years to fulfill over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament, an impossibility if he was not the Messiah. Even when he was being arrested, Jesus said, according to Mark chapter 14, verse 49, as they were arresting him, he says, Hey, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the scripture must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus said, I, I didn't do anything in secret. I put myself under a microscope. I taught in the temple daily. I taught out loud. 
he also said, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. So now we come to Jesus. We come to the time that he's being persecuted. Back in the book of Isaiah, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. You know that adversity is the real test of character and truth? It's not when things are going well. It's when things are going hard. It's when things are going rough. It's when we are going through times of adversity. That's when true character, that's when real truth, that's when you get to know who someone really is. How are they? And you've heard me use this illustration a million times, but it's such a great illustration, and I can't claim it. I heard it from someone else. But during those hot water situations, what is revealed? You know, you can take that tea bag, and you can label it whatever you want. Why, this is orange spice tea. This is apple cinnamon tea. This is, uh, this is green tea. But you're not going to really know what it is until you boil water, put it in a cup, and then stick that tea bag into that hot water situation. You ever had tea that was labeled wrong? It says that it's orange spice, but you got apple cinnamon. Boy, the label lied to me. Well, labels mean nothing. Truth comes out during adversity. Truth comes out during hot water. That's when you learn who your real friends are. That's how you learn who you really are. Isaiah prophesied that as the Lamb of God, the Messiah's ultimate revelation would be when he continued to act like a lamb despite the brutality of his treatment and eventual death. He wasn't going to all of a sudden turn into a lion, which, by the way, theoretically, he could have. No, the Bible says as the Lamb of God, he would continue to be a lamb. When you sacrifice a lamb, a lamb has no recourse. He doesn't have the claws of a lion. He doesn't have the teeth of a lion. He doesn't have the roar of a lion. And so he was a lamb. So silent he was before his accusers. Silent he was as he was being uh, brutally attacked. Silent he was as he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Why? Because he couldn't all of a sudden change into a lion. That would not fulfill the prophecy. The final revelation is when Jesus revealed himself during a time of of adversity that he truly was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. His adversity certainly revealed the spiritual immaturity of his disciples. Peter wrote concerning Jesus that when he was reviled, and by the way, Peter was an eyewitness, Peter said, when Jesus reviled, he reviled not. And it puzzled Peter. Lord, you have this power. We've seen you heal the blind, raise the lame, cause the, uh, uh, cause the dead to come out of their tombs. Lord, we know you have the power. And we know it puzzled Peter at first, but later Peter would write, 
He, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He was the perfect lamb, the silent Messiah. But Jesus revealed to his disciples their immaturity. He revealed their lack of faith to them, but they didn't believe him. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, he says, I'm about to go through some great adversity. You're going to all be offended, all 11 of you, because one had already been offended and left. All 11 of you are going to be offended and you're going to flee. And of course, they argued with him. We would never do that. Peter argued the most. Though they argued... And though they labeled themselves as spiritual giants and good friends. Matthew chapter 26 verse number 56 says, But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Adversity will reveal where your friends are and often who your friends are. As you're going through those hard times, as you're going through those hardships, as you're going through those trials, adversity will reveal one's true character and often purpose. I can tell you as the pastor of a church for 28 years, when a church goes through adversity, you find out who's there for the Word of God and who's there for the programs and who's there for the good times and who the fair weather worshipers are because as you go through adversity they jump off of the wagon oh but the the spiritual ones stick and they stay we saw it during the time of the pandemic who stuck who stayed and who was offended and who left adversity is going to retrieve reveal one's true character Jesus, the final revelation, as he was oppressed, as he was afflicted, as he was arrested, as he was tortured, and as he was nailed to the cross, the Bible says, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus' adversity was the final revelation of truth about him. No man who was not the Messiah could be so gracious during such adversity and such hardships. And as a result, Jesus revealing who he was, that last revelation, it changed people's minds about him. Consider the thief on the cross who was convinced after railing on Jesus with everyone else. Remember, there were two two malefactors, one on the right hand and one on the left. The Bible says that as people came up and said, oh, Uh, If you are the Messiah, free yourself. And the Bible says that even the malefactors, the thieves, that they, they cast the same in his teeth. But one of them, after observing this Lamb of God, who displayed no lion like tendencies, only a lamb, silent. The Bible tells us that one of the thieves changed their, changed their tune. Luke chapter 23, verse 39, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, 
seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And so the, the one thief who was making fun of Jesus is now going, wait a minute. I've never seen anyone act like this before. Oh, he must be who he claims to be. He even confessed his sins. He's saying that we are up here justly. We deserve this. But this man has done nothing to deserve this. What about the centurion centurion who oversaw the crucifixion? Remember, it required German soldiers to take Jesus. It required German soldiers to to, uh, nail the spikes in his hand, to hammer those spikes in his hand and in his feet. It took German soldiers to raise him up and to place him on that crossbeam. The one who oversaw the whole thing, the centurion, the boss, was there from the beginning to the end. And after watching Jesus, and I'm sure he had seen many crucifixions, but this one was different. The Bible says that the Roman centurion in Luke chapter 23, verse number 47, when he saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Why? Because of that final revelation. He remained silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Mark chapter 15, verse number 39. Mark says that this was the reaction of the centurion. He professed, truly this man was the son of God. What a statement. This was a hardened soldier. And if You've been around prisoners for any amount of time. You know this. They're all innocent. Not a one of them deserves to be where he is. And yet this Roman centurion who had heard person after person after person say, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be hanging on the cross. When he came to Jesus, Jesus never said that. Not a word. Jesus was helpful, as helpful as he could be, but he was so weakened by his beatings that perhaps this centurion even was involved in. He couldn't even carry his own cross. And then while Jesus hung there on the cross, the very first thing he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then the centurion watched as that thief on the cross who earlier was saying I shouldn't be here I'm innocent why don't you help us all get off of this cross and he watched him change his tune and he heard him as that thief professed his sins to Jesus and said will you remember me when you enter your kingdom and I'm sure the centurion was sitting there thinking to himself yeah right that guy's a murderer he's a thief No way is Jesus going to even acknowledge him. And yet from the cross, Jesus says to that thief, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I don't know what the final straw was that caused that hardened centurion to finally say, This was a righteous man. This man was the Son of God. 
But we know it all had to do with this final revelation. The fact that Jesus on the cross revealed his true character. He didn't turn into a lion. He told Peter he could, but he didn't. He fulfilled the prophecies to the very end. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. No doubt others were convinced as well. Luke twenty three forty eight says that all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. You know, this is a sign of guilt. It's a sign of um, repentance. Who knows how many of those people went back as believers because they saw the Son of God's true character as he hung there on the cross. Matthew 26, verse 51, Jesus' silence like the Lamb of God is certainly the final revelation of this truth. Matthew 26, Matthew writes in verse 51, And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. This was during his arrest. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? He says, I could turn into a lion, but then the scriptures won't be fulfilled. I need to remain the Lamb of God, silent. And so we can see the first reason, I believe, for the silent Messiah is because it was the final revelation. It was the final revelation. We know at least of a couple who became believers because of that final revelation. A centurion, a thief on the cross, and probably others. But the second reason for the silence of the Savior is because it brought total salvation. It brought total salvation. You see, he suffered silently so we could be saved. Satan tried to break him. Jesus would not be dissuaded, however, from his duty. Jesus left his throne to become a servant. He became a subordinate. He accepted the assignment that God the Father had given him. In John 5.30, Jesus says, I can of mine own will or my own self do nothing as I hear. I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. In other words, I have become a servant. I've become a soldier. I've been given marching orders, and I must do. I must do what God the Father tells me to do. In John 5, 36, the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Jesus had his marching orders. Jesus had his assignment, and he knew he had to carry it out to the letter of the law. The last thing he said before giving up the ghost on the cross was, it is finished. It is finished. Remember, he said that I had to go and do. I had to finish the works 
that he sent me to do. And finally on the cross, after being silent, after being the lamb, after going through that hardship and going through the adversity and being oppressed and being tortured, he finally said, it's finished. I've done it. It is complete. The prophecies have been fulfilled. You've seen the final revelation. And now, total salvation is the result. You know, many have silently and respectfully given their lives for a cause they thought worthy. In September 8th of 1776, George Washington was in a great need of intelligence without which it would be difficult to defeat the British military. He had a bright young man, very smart man, who had surprised many when he volunteered because this was a man with a great degree. This was a man with a great and bright future. But he volunteered and he said, I'll gather the intelligence you need. I'll be that spy. He was a man by the name of Nathan Hale. Two weeks later, he was captured. According to the standards, all spies were executed and considered to be illegal combatants. And knowing he was facing certain death, all accounts, including those of British officers, say that Hale presented himself with bravery and dignity. Like Jesus, he reviled not even though... The letters he was allowed to write to his family members were torn up in front of him. He was sentenced without the courtesy of a court-martial. And yet all eyewitnesses said that he presented himself with dignity. British officer Frederick Mackenzie wrote in his diary, Hale behaved with great composure and resolution saying he thought it the duty of every good officer to obey any orders given him by his commander-in-chief and desired the spectators to be at all times prepared to meet death in whatever shape it might appear. Hale's last words are thought to, be, are thought to have been, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Like Nathan Hale and others, Jesus silently, willingly, and submittingly gave his life for a worthy cause so that others might live, so that others might be saved. Unlike Nathan Hale, Jesus took his life back. The sacrifice having been given, the scripture having been fulfilled, after being in the grave for three days and three nights, the Bible says that death couldn't keep an innocent man. And he rose from the grave. The final revelation. Total salvation. But I believe that the third and last reason for his silence was for thorough vindication. Thorough vindication. Understand this. Jesus is not only called the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He's also called the Lion of Judah. He's called the Judge the king of kings. And the next time he comes back, it's not as a lamb. He already played that part. He already offered himself as the sacrifice. Thorough vindication will be his next part. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and in verse number 21, Peter writes this, 
For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. He's talking about suffering. Christians complain about suffering, but Peter says we've all been called to suffer. He left us an example. But listen to what else Peter says. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Jesus did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But here's the kicker. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. In other words, Jesus said, I don't have to get revenge. Because if I do what I'm supposed to do, God will get revenge. I think we forget that though the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, God is also a vengeful God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus says to us, or God's Word says to us, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. As Christians, we are often unjustly treated and we know that and we've come to expect that but God says to us avenge not yourselves for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay saith the Lord therefore if thine enemy hunger feed him if he thirst give him drink for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Just as Jesus did for us. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten. Peter says that he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. God is the righteous judge. In Luke 21, verse 22. Jesus said, For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 3, a question is asked, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Jesus died on the cross. He became the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the offering. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, Jesus Christ on the cross, the gift of God is eternal life. But the question is asked, if I reject this gift, if I never accept Christ as my personal Savior... And when God comes for revenge because of what the world did to his son, how shall I escape? There is no escape unless I accept Christ as my Savior. Unless I confess my sins sent him to the cross. He has done nothing amiss. I deserved that. Oh, Lord God, forgive me of my sins. Jesus be my Savior. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead and thou shalt be saved. 
But if I neglect to do that, if I refuse to do that, after Jesus became the Lamb of God and opened not his mouth, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? It's a rhetorical question. There is no escape if we neglect what Jesus did for us. His silence was a final revelation. He is who he claimed to be. It provided total salvation. Oh, but for those who reject that salvation, thorough vindication. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Jesus came and he paved a new path. And he said this, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth to salvation. And few there be that find it. That narrow path, that straight gate, it leads right to the cross of Calvary. Right to the cross of Christ.